We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. John, Tish, thank you all so much. Sometimes I wish that we could preach before we sing so that when you sing, you get to know the words that are about to be preached or you've known the words that have been preached because I think sometimes it would bring out further depth and meaning to the songs that you sing. I think that song we just sang is one that is that way with this message. Thank you guys so much for for leading us. Hey, Emmaus, it's good to see you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus, and if you're a guest, it's a joy to have you with us. I hope that you feel welcomed and and loved and that you um, uh, know the love of Christ through your time that is here with us today. Uh, We'd love to meet you uh, after the service, either at the Connect table um, or just come up to me after the service. I'll be down front here. Uh, I'd love to meet you, um, see your face, uh, hear, your, hear your name, shake your hand if you would like to do that. And, uh, and then for anyone else that would just like prayer or to talk about something, I'm happy to do that as well. I'll be down here after the service and invite you to come do that. But then if you are a guest, there's also a Connect table in the lobby. You can go by there and you can uh, fill out a Connect card, get some information about the church. Uh, you could also go to EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. That's EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. And you can uh, fill out a digital Connect card and get connected with the church in other ways via that route as well. Hey, on November the 14th, we have a members meeting coming up uh, from 3 to 5 at Northland Baptist Church. Uh, If you have been a covenant member, you're familiar with these. Uh, We um, are going together. We're going to welcome in new members. We're going to celebrate um, a handful of baptisms. We're going to um, announce to you, uh, Lord willing, a few elder candidates that we're looking to bring into our elder team here at the church to help us further shepherd you as people faithfully. Uh, And we're going to spend some time um, just talking about who Emmaus is, right? Talking about who we are. A lot of you have joined us in the midst of COVID. Like you came to us in the middle of COVID and who Emmaus is and looks like, like we're still the same people with the same mission, but it's looked a lot different because of the world that we've been in. Uh, And we want to kind of reorient ourselves to who we believe God's called us to be and what he's called us to do as a church and kind of say, what does that look like for us as we move forward? Because of that, uh, we have lifted the one representative from each family mandate, right? So some of you have actually reached out and you're like, please take away the one representative from each family rule um, because we miss members meetings. It's a joy to my heart that members meetings are something that you miss, right? That, that it's not like, oh, I got to go to members meeting again. But it's, man, that's something like it's good for my soul to be there. We've lifted that. And here's the problem with lifting that at Northland. We'll never be able to do one of these at Northland again. We're too large for all of us to be gathered there. They seat 267 with members and their children. We're over 300, right? And so that means um, we're counting on some of you not coming, and we're pleading with all of you to come. That's a weird tension, right? We want all of you to come. Please come. Make it a priority. And then we're counting on the fact that some of you just can't come, right? And, And then what we're also just going to embrace is absolute mass chaos, intentional mass chaos, There's going to be children, there's going to be noise, there's going to be people sitting on the floor. If the fire marshal comes, it could be bad, right? So so we'll move the meeting outside, so bring a coat, okay? So so that's what we're counting on. Come join us, embrace it with us. We look forward to kind of going, here's who we are, where we're going. This is what the Lord, we believe, is going to be doing um, through Emmaus. And so I invite you to join us for that, members. Hey, we have one more announcement. I want to invite Hannah Schreiner to the front. 
Hannah did not get the memo today. Adam wore a vest. Um, uh, John wore a vest. I wore a vest. Hannah and my wife Tish did not, so they did not get the dress code today. Um, but Hannah is our um, recently appointed director of Emmaus Women. And so, yes, yes, that's a good celebration. Yes, thank you, Hannah. Um, that is a free roll, which should make you applause even more for Hannah. Yes. Um, Elizabeth Sanders has been doing this for us for a number of years before that, Tish did, and, and they have been incredibly faithful leading our women that way, and just in a transition of life and things, Elizabeth said, you know, I feel like the Lord, I need to step out of that position, um, and at the same time, the Lord's been working in Hannah's heart for years to want to step into a position like this at a church and help lead women in community and discipleship, and so we're really excited for her to be in that. She wants to make an announcement for the women of Emmaus, and then we will read the scripture and get into the passage. Thanks, Josh. Like you said, my name is Hannah Schreiner. Um, I'm really excited to be stepping into this role and for all that the Lord has for not only Emmaus, but the women at Emmaus. And part of, as Emmaus has sought to be together this fall, um, we want the ladies to do exactly that. So we're gonna have an event Friday here at the loft space from seven to 9 p.m. There'll be light refreshments, um, a few giveaways, and just time to fellowship with one another. So we really hope that you can come if you have a friend that's new to Emmaus, please invite her. Feel free to pick her up, go to dinner beforehand, and come. And if you guys have any questions, there's now an email for women um, at Emmaus, which is just women at EmmausKC.com. So feel free to ask me about that. Um, yeah, I hope to see many of you guys there. Thanks. Thanks, Hannah. Appreciate it. All right. <clears throat> Let's read our passage, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump into this. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Let's pray. And Jesus, we thank you for your word today. I thank you for song. I thank you for confession, for assurance of pardon. I thank you for for laughter together and for fellowship together and for diving into the scriptures together, what gifts they are to us today. 
in this moment under the sun that is fleeting, that will be over soon, may we not lose sight of the gift that we have before us in this very moment. Father, we pray that you would be with family of ours who are around the globe. Father, specifically today in Rhode Island, that you'd be with Corey and Jamie. Father, as they have been sharing the gospel with their barber. Father, would you be with their barber? Would you woo him to you with the gospel? May he come to faith. May he know that Jesus is greater than all of the fleetingness of this life. Father, we pray for for Matt and Grace in Southeast Asia. As Grace has begun to work with uh, Ikeda Designs, a company that employs, uh, a business that, that employs women of sexual exploitation. Father, would you, would you give Grace wisdom and love and kindness and gospel words to share with these women? May they know their value and their purpose before you, and may they be called to faith in you. Bring so much healing there, Father. And the Father be with us today in this word. There are tough words in this passage. It calls us to embrace tough things in this passage. Things that we will want to resist. So Father, would you make our hearts soft and our minds teachable. May there be growth that comes today in our hearts through your word and through the working of the spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. One of the greatest fears that I have is to be a fool. But if I want to be really honest, I think there's probably more fear of being seen as a fool than actually being a fool. That's what my Enneagram 3 would tell me, at least. Right? Some of you just cringe. You go, oh. Not prescribing, just describing. Right? There's a brokenness in me that goes, man, I don't want to be seen as a fool. And through this passage, I've I've been praying that the Lord would actually make my heart go, I don't want to be a fool. I don't just want the appearance of being wise. I I want to be wise. Because to be wise is better. To be wise is an inheritance. To be wise preserves life. Make me wise, not just to look wise in front of other people. Solomon unpacks for us in this text what it means to be wise, how we pursue wisdom, where we find wisdom. Now, if you remember last week, um, in chapter 6, verse 12, Solomon asks us a question. Perhaps it's a rhetorical question, but it's a question that we all must consider. Solomon asks this, chapter 6, verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his life in vain, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will come after him under the sun? Solomon says, listen, you can't absolutely know what is good in life. For all of your efforts, you can't absolutely know what the right decision is. Because you don't know what comes after you. You don't know what comes tomorrow or the next day or when you're dead. So to have the absolute knowledge of what is good today, you don't have. Because under the sun, your knowledge is fleeting. It's vanity. It's limited. Now, there's three ways to respond to this. 
to, to this realization that we can't absolutely know what is good because we don't know tomorrow. There's three ways to respond. One is we give up. We throw in the towel. We stop trying to know what's good. We stop caring about what's good. And we just go on life not worrying about the decisions we make. We, we just throw in the towel on this whole pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and goodness. The second is that we try to prove him wrong. Oh, you might not be able to know what's good, but I can figure it out. Enough learning, enough knowledge, enough education, enough, enough experience in life. I will figure out what's good. I will know what it tomorrow holds. I can accomplish this. And we make it our pursuit to chase the wind of knowing what is good. The third is that we embrace the truth, that we do not know what is true, or excuse me, what is good, that we don't know what tomorrow brings, but we still seek wisdom. We keep pursuing wisdom. And in the midst of it, trusting God with the hevel of life. Right, the hevel, if you've not been with us, hevel is the word he uses here in our text of vanity. It means fleeting. It's a vapor, a smoke. It's here, you can't grab onto it. It's here one moment, gone the next. You try to grab, grab it, and it just slips through your fingers. He says that's what life is like under the sun. That's the life all of us live, a life of hevel that just slips through our fingers. And so Solomon's approach to not truly knowing what is good, to not knowing what tomorrow is, his approach is, I might not know that, but I'm going to spend my days trusting God with what I don't know while I pursue wisdom. That's his approach. Now in chapter seven, he's going to teach us how to pursue wisdom, where to find wisdom through Proverbs. He shifts his genre here. As if Ecclesiastes is not a hard enough book to interpret already, now he just goes, and let me just throw a curveball and completely switch genres of literature with you. I'm going to roll out for you Proverbs, pithy statements. They appear to be incongruent with each other. First glance, you're kind of like, well, is this like eight different sermons? But he has one point. There's a deeper point than even what we see. As he does this in chapter 7, he's going to use comparative judgments. Comparative judgments. In other words, what he's going to do is he's going to say one thing is better than another. And when he does so, he's not automatically saying that the one that is lesser is bad. Right? Pizza is better than tacos. It's not that tacos are bad, bad for you, but not bad, right? They're, they're not bad, it's just pizza's better. One commentator called this section of, of, of Ecclesiastes good, better, best. Right? He's going, listen, that's not a bad thing, but a better thing is this. So keep that in mind. We're going to pair these passages into four sections. Three lessons of where to find wisdom, and then one lesson of what wisdom is from, or what wisdom is for. What's the purpose? What's the goal? So, First, where do we find wisdom? Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Wisdom embraces sorrow. Wisdom embraces sorrow. Look at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Is precious ointment bad? No. I hope you're wearing some precious ointment today. 
right? I hope, hope you're smelling good because there's some sort of precious ointment that you put on today. Particularly here, precious ointment being something of great value. Is it bad to have something of great value? Well, no, he's not saying that's bad. But he's saying what's better is a good name, a good reputation. It's better to have a good reputation than to have much wealth. There's truth in there, for sure. But in the scope of his entire argument, that's not the main point. He is setting up this comparative judgment for us. You know, it's, it's good to have good precious ointment. It's better to have a good reputation. Likewise, he says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Again, he's not saying the day of birth is bad. The day of birth is a wonderful thing. We, we don't remember our own day of birth, but, but you probably remember the day of someone's birth. For you parents, especially the day of your children's birth, I mean, just that moment of seeing your child, their hair, their smile, their eyes looking up at you if they happen to open their eyes that day, their tiny, tiny fingers wrapping around just the tip of your finger, holding them in. And, and if, I, I don't know for you, but in that moment of holding my son at the day of his birth, like, there was a lot of wisdom that I gained that day. At that day, I came to realization of a lot of truths in life. Chief, I believe, most, the chief, chief among those, uh, those wisdoms I gained was this reality that I am incapable of saving this kid. Like, like the moment I saw him, I, I felt like Paul who said, I would give up my very own salvation. I'd be damned if you could be saved. I felt that for him. I would, I would go to hell if it meant my son could spend eternity with Christ. I would give up myself for him, but I can't do that. I can teach him about the Lord. I can teach him about Jesus. I can shower him with the gospel, and ultimately, it is not up to me, but Christ to save my son. There was so much that I had to lay down at the feet of my Savior that day of my son's birth. A lot of wisdom gained. Solomon's not saying you don't get wisdom here, but... He's saying that wisdom comes more in death than in life. There's more wisdom to be found in death than in birth. Verse 2 helps us to understand this more. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. I don't know about you, I've been in both of these houses. And I would much rather the house of feasting. If I'm going to cry, I would much rather cry over a good meal and delicious drink and laughs with friends than over the death of someone. I'd rather a good meal than a deep cry any day. Solomon, though, says it's better to go in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Notice we are the ones going into the house of mourning. So you're not the one dead here. You're the one going into the house of death. Walking into the house of mourning to witness death, to witness it and to take it in, to observe it. What he's saying is that there's more wisdom that comes from grieving at a loved one's funeral than that comes from feasting with a loved one at a holiday. 
The Bible celebrates and even commands feasting. Feasting is not bad. The holiday, maybe feasting is bad if you feast every day, right? It's a little unhealthy. But feasting in and of itself is not a bad thing. The Bible says feast, do this. There's actual commands in Scripture to feast and to celebrate. And the holidays are coming, which are such an incredible opportunity to feast with friends and with family, to celebrate what the Lord has done. And there's wisdom to gain in that by enjoying food and by thanking God and by good conversation with each other and by deep belly laughs that remind you not to take yourself too seriously, you can gain a lot of wisdom in feasting. But feasting seldom teaches us about the hevel of life. It seldom teaches us about the hevel of life. Seldom are we at a table with good friends, enjoying good food and drinking delicious drink, and one of the friends just pipes up and goes, you know what, guys? I just want to remind us all, we're going to die. So enjoy this while you can. It doesn't happen very often, and if it does, that guy doesn't get invited back to the next feast. Because in the moment of feasting, you want to celebrate. You're, you're, it's a respite. Feasting is a respite from that reality. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But when you go into the house of mourning, when you go into the house of grieving, when you go to where there is death, you're reminded that you too will die. You're reminded that you too will die. You're reminded that life under this sun is hevel. It's all fleeting. Your days are slipping through your fingers and you can't do anything about it. Can't do anything about it. When you begin to think about death and loss and hevel, and you're, you're forced to ask yourself difficult questions. Questions like, what am I living for? What am I doing with myself? What do I want my final days to look like? Who, what, who do I need to tell that I love them? What is my relationship with God like? What's the point of all this stuff, all this work, all this gain? Am I enjoying the gifts that God has given me? Am I living today to the fullest, making the most of the days that I have? We have to ask ourselves tough questions when we're faced with death. They teach us things that we will not learn in any other way. Psalm 90, verse 12, which is the cliff notes of Ecclesiastes in my mind. Solomon's Cliff Notes of Ecclesiastes, Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom comes when we remember we're going to die. Wisdom comes when we realize we have limited days to enjoy the gifts that God has given us and to live for the glory of God. Verse 3 continues this. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. I've been in deep seasons of sorrow, and I've been in deep moments of laughter. And other than that one time in elementary school and the lunchroom when my deep laughter led to chocolate milk coming out of my nose, other than that time, I will always choose laughter over sorrow. 
that time, it kind of felt sorrowful in the midst of the laughter. What? Who in their right mind would choose sorrow over laughter? Some of us do. And some of us are like, we want to punish ourselves by keeping ourselves in places of sorrow. That's not what he's saying here. Pursue laughter. Pursue joy. Pursue life. Pursue happiness. Yes, that's a gift the Lord has given us. But Solomon says here that sorrow is better than laughter. For a sad face brings about gladness. Why is sorrow better than laughter? Like I, I go to counseling over sorrow, not over laughter. Right? I, I feel stuck in bed over sorrow, not over laughter. I feel alone in my sorrow, not over la- not in laughter. I, I want sometimes to die in sorrow, not in laughter. How is sorrow better than laughter? When he says, for by sadness the heart is made glad, perhaps what he means is that we don't understand true gladness without experiencing true sorrow. I, I think there's truth to that. It's, it's the comparative thing. You, you understand what true gladness is when you've ex- actually experienced some form of true sorrow. I, I think there's some truth to that, but I don't think that's his point here. Again, he's talking about gaining wisdom. Where do we find wisdom? And so I think what Solomon's saying is this, sorrow, like the day of death and like the house of mourning, teaches us wisdom. Sorrow teaches us wisdom. When we're in seasons of laughter, we're not asking ourselves these hard questions. When we're in seasons of laughter, we're not com- contemplating tough truths. We're not wrestling with deep issues. Laughter is a respite from those things. But in seasons of sorrow, Are you not driven to humility? Are you not driven to a feel of hopelessness in and of yourself? Driven to dependence? Driven driven to a need of others? Driven to contemplation and to prayer and to the scriptures in a place of sorrow? He says, when you're in this place of sorrow, you find wisdom there. And when you find wisdom, you will find true gladness. Wisdom brings about this gladness. We gain much wisdom in seasons of sorrow because we're forced to wrestle with much in our hearts and minds. And we gain much wisdom in seasons of sorrow because we're, faced to, uh, because we're forced to face the reality of hevel. Of hevel. I can't hold on to the good things. I can't stop the bad things, no matter how hard I try. Sorrow comes and sorrow goes, and it's out of my control. The life is fleeting. I have to look outside this life for joy in my soul. And in doing so, if we look to the God who is above the sun, we find gladness. Verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The one church who can admit mourning and sadness and heartache and loss and death and grief, 
the one who can admit these things, who can recognize these, who can embrace them and walk through them in an honesty of heart, gains wisdom. The one who is full of mirth is the one who perpetually must be cheerful. Mirth is laughter, cheerfulness, gleefulness. And the image we get of it here is this person who has to live in that state of life. Like I, I always have to be cheerful and happy, roses and butterflies and sunsets all the time. Not just because I'm a naturally um, optimistic person, but because I'm afraid to admit those things aren't true. The person who ignores reality and pretends like everything's happy when there's actually sorrow. This is the person living the life of mirth. Some of us do this, and we call it faith. That, that, that wasn't a fun thing to go through. Yeah, that was hard. But I just keep trusting God and walking forward and trusting him to work it out. And perhaps there's true faith there. But perhaps it's not faith, but foolishness sometimes. Ignoring the sorrow, pretending like it's not there, living in mirth, not the house of faith. See, church, wisdom says this. This is really hard. It, it hurts. My, my heart is troubled and my soul is worried. I'm grieved inside. I'm at a loss inside. I'm mourning inside. I know that God is good and that he's in control. Man, I sure don't feel that way right now. I don't feel that way right now. I sure doesn't feel like he sees me. Doesn't feel like he knows my needs doesn't feel like he cares for my pains. I feel really alone right now. I feel alone in my sin, and I feel alone in my shame, and I feel alone in my sorrow and my grief. I don't feel like, like God's paying any attention right now. I want to be faithful, but it is hard right now. This sorrow expressed in this way brings wisdom. So wisdom embraces sorrow. Secondly, chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, wisdom embraces rebuke. Wisdom embraces rebuke. Let me read 5 through 7 for you. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This, is also, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Look at verse seven again. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe abrupts the heart. When suffering comes, when oppression comes, and here the idea of oppression is, is like the big picture of oppression. Maybe it's oppression from someone upon you. Maybe it's the oppression of sin in the world. Maybe it's just the oppression of brokenness in life, sorrow, grief, death. When these trials, these troubles, these hardships come upon you, madness comes too. Madness we see here is the embrace of easy words the embrace of simplistic comfort. In hard times, we turn to flattery to encourage us. In hard times, we turn to positive chatter that, that tickles our ears and, and gives us tingly good feelings. 
and hard times and grief and, and, and these places, it's where you see really bad theology come out because we want to grasp something that'll make us feel better in the midst of it. When this oppression comes, then madness comes. And when someone offers us a bribe that feels really nice to take, we buy in quickly and abandon the truth. We'll do everything we can to abandon sorrow and death and hevel and run to the easy words that help us feel better. Church, I want to make a clarification here. Kind gentle, loving words to someone who is in a season of sorrow and oppression are not the problem. This is not licensed to rebuke those who are struggling with faith and their suffering. That's not what this passage is saying. The point of this passage is not that you get to rebuke more people to help them become more wise. The point of this passage is that you need to receive rebuke when it comes and not only look for flattery. Receive the rebuke when it comes. Don't only look for flattery. These verses are saying that wisdom comes not from empty and frivolous praise, but from wise rebuke over sin and over doubt and over fear from wise rebuke to keep trusting the Lord when we would want to not trust him. In hard times, we want to hear easy words. Words like, that wasn't that bad. Or, it'll be okay. That'll go away tomorrow. You're just misunderstood. Oh, we're all like that. Right? We, we, we have a rule about this in our community groups. We call it don't rescue. It's that idea that someone is confessing sin, referring to their doubt. They're they're addressing something in their life, and and what we naturally want to do is jump to their defense and ease the pain they're walking through. Oh, you're not that bad. I haven't seen you be that bad at that. That's not how I've witnessed you. Oh, like, like we're all like that. It's okay. We want to help the person feel better immediately, relieve their pain, and, and And in the words of Ben Clark, what we're probably doing is we're wanting to really try to relieve our own pain. What they're saying is making us uncomfortable. So we try to relieve theirs and our pain in the midst of this. We call it rescuing in community groups. It's the idea of flattery here, this frivolous words of praise and not truth. This is what Solomon here in this passage calls thorns under a pot. Thorns under a pot. I don't know if you've ever tried to make a fire with a thorn bush. I've not. So I had to read what in the world is the difference between thorns under a pot versus wood under a pot. What's what's he trying to say? His point is this. Thorns under a pot produce no heat. A thorn bush crackles really loud. It sparks a lot. It looks like there's a lot of action taking place, but there's no heat to cook the meal. Frivolous words are thorns under a pot. They make a lot of noise. They look like a lot of stuff is happening. They might get quick results, but you're not going to cook up wisdom. You're not going to cook up wisdom. Kids, let me give you one simple treat of truth. This isn't a trick. This is a treat for you, all right? Treat of truth, kids. 
perhaps the greatest way you grow in wisdom is to listen to the correction of your parents. Perhaps the greatest way that children grow in wisdom is to listen to the correction of their parents. So listen closely. Your parents love you. They want you to grow in wisdom and strength, to do well, to know Jesus. Listen to their correction and gain wisdom all your days. For the sake of time, I'll move on. Chapter 7, verses 8 through 10, we see our last place that he mentions that we find wisdom. He says, wisdom embraces the present. Wisdom embraces the present. Let me read chapters 7, verses 8 through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Solomon has this understanding that we often get distracted by the past. We get distracted by the past. The wise man is not caught up in the good old days. The wise man is not caught off guard by today's troubles. And the wise man is not afraid of tomorrow's troubles. He's not trying to live in the past or bring it back or hold on to it. He doesn't think he has it all figured out because of yesterday's experiences. I've been through this before. Let me tell you exactly what's going to happen. And the wise man is not easily angered over the loss of yesterday or the hurts of today. They're able to be present today, to see today for what it is. They see today as a day under the sun a day that is full of delights and disquiets, a day that, is, that sin has affected and a day that grace has been injected into. It is a day of gift for us. And today we're to live this day under the sun, not as, not as one who's chasing the wind of yesterday, not as one who's chasing the wind of vain praise, not as one who's chasing the wind of easy living, Today we embrace this life under the sun by looking to the God who is above the sun as our hope and as our joy and as our gladness and by enjoying the gifts that he's given us today. He says, you want to find wisdom? Be present today in patience and gentleness, not in anger, not worked up, not looking to yesterday for the good and the good old days. Be here today and embrace what God has laid before you today. Now, in chapter 7, verses 11 through 13, he reminds us of the benefit of wisdom. Let's read it. Wisdom is good, is, is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Verse 11, he says, wisdom is good as with an inheritance, an advantage to those under the sun. The pursuit of wisdom, church, may not have immediate payoff. You must be patient for it. He's already told us, be patient today. You pursue wisdom, and sometimes you don't gain what you thought it was going to give you. Life doesn't go the way you thought it would if you just learned something more. 
We can gain all the wisdom and have all the knowledge, but the question of chapter 6, verse 12 still remains, who knows what's actually good? Because you don't know tomorrow. So you gain all this wisdom today, and tomorrow might actually not go in accordance with your wisdom. But wisdom will have a payoff. It's a big picture, long-term payoff. We wait for it with patience. In verse 12, he talks about valuing money and wisdom alike. You and I value money. We try to protect, I hope you value money, and to some degree you try to protect your money, you want to have money, you try to save money, you, you, you want to be able to make sure that no one takes your money. You, you value it. You, what you value, you want to protect, and you want to keep safe, and you want to have when you need it. He goes, that's the same thing as wisdom. Do you value wisdom? Do you seek it to gain it? Do you seek to hold on to it? Do you seek to keep it safe, to protect it, to nurture it? Do you seek for it to grow like you do your money? Is wisdom valuable to you? And he says it should be because the one who finds wisdom extends his life or preserves his life. Now, I want to remind you of a rule of Proverbs. This is a great rule when you're reading the book of Proverbs as well. They're not always absolute truth. They're generally wise statements, not absolute truth. Which means you pursue wisdom and you might die at 25. While the absolute fool lives to 97. That can happen. Because we don't control the hevel of this world. But the general rule is the one who pursues wisdom preserves his life, both in this life and, in a way, in eternity. Because a true pursuit of wisdom always leads us to the true one who is wise. Now, verse 13 is a difficult and I hope hopeful verse for us as we conclude. It's difficult because Solomon recognizes that there are some things in this life that are crooked, and God is the one who made them crooked. We can't avoid the truth that he has here. There are things in this life that have not gone the way that you and I wish they had gone. Things that were broken, things that were lost, things that were sorrow. And God caused them. God led into them. There are things that are crooked, and it's God's doing. Think of Job. Satan comes to God and says, I'm looking for someone to tempt. And God goes, have you considered Job? Tempt him. He hands Job over on a platter to be sifted by the enemy. And the next several days are unimaginable pain for him. He loses absolutely everything and everyone, but his wife, who as it goes on is just more trouble than maybe it was worth. That's what it feels like, at least, in the moment of sorrow. Months and years of grief follow. And God set that crooked path in motion. But God didn't leave him on the crooked path alone. He was with him. He came to him and he spoke to him. 
He gave him hope and life and truth and restored him and sustained him. It's a difficult verse, verse 13. Look at it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? It's also a really, really hopeful verse. Because the natural answer that we come to when we read this is who can make straight what he has made crooked is no one. That's been the whole point of of Ecclesiastes. I can't do anything about the hevel of this life. It comes and it goes and it's out of my grasp. It's fleeting. But this proverb has such a deeper truth to it than that answer. Because there actually is someone who can set straight what has been made crooked. It's God himself. Who can set straight what God has made crooked? God can. He can make straight every crooked path the world has ever known. And he promises in Revelation 21 to do that very thing. In Revelation 21, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. The crooked paths are no longer crooked. They are straight. I make all things new. This is the setting of crookedness to straightness. Now, in that passage in Revelation 21, let me give you the bigger picture. It says, beginning just before that, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All of these places that Solomon's telling us you find wisdom in, will be no more. And we will know wisdom. We won't have to learn it in our sorrow and in death and in grief and in loss because we will be in the very presence of wisdom. Not under the sun and the brokenness of this heaven, but above the sun with the God who reigns supreme over it all. There'll be no more tears and sadness and death for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. Take note of this. These words are trustworthy and they are true. I promise you they're coming for you. He said, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Church, there's not a thing in this world that you and I can look at and go, that's done. Because we don't know tomorrow. We can't control anything in the heaven. We don't understand what happened before us. We have no clue what's coming after us. We don't even have a grasp of what's right before us. But God, the alpha and the the omega, the beginning and the end, who knows every detail of every moment of all of history from the beginning to the end, looks at all of it and goes, I promise you, it's already done. There's nothing that's going to surprise me tomorrow that changes what I'm telling you. It is done. I am making everything straight. To the thirsty, he says, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You don't have to bring anything to me to get this new life I'm talking about. You don't have to bring payment. You don't have to buy this. You don't have to purchase this. There's nothing you can bring to me that will gain you this new hope, this new day, this new life, this straight path. In fact, you can't buy it. In fact, the only way you can get it is to come to me with your empty thirst, thirst of need. I need something and I don't have what it takes to meet my need. I need something else. 
And then he says this in chapter, in Revelation 21, verse seven, the one who conquers will have this heritage. We sang about this today. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Who conquers? Well, yeah, you and I conquer, but why? Not because we brought any strength to the battle, but because Jesus Christ, the son of God, conquered sin and death. And those who place their faith in him are made one with Christ. And what is Christ is ours. His victory is yours because of faith in him. You are his son and you are his daughter because of Christ. Church, today is Reformation Sunday. Some of you thought we were gonna go a whole service without mentioning that and you were a little concerned about us. It's Reformation Sunday. On this day in 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church, calling for reform in the Catholic church. Central to the need of this reform was the issue of indulgences. That people, the church was teaching that you pay money and you get freedom from your sin. You pay money and you get people out of purgatory for their sin. Pay money and you get newness of life, a straight path. Central to his reform was, no, you don't pay anything to get that. Come empty, poor, thirsty, needy, bring nothing and you receive that. You can't buy that. And you and I on this side of the Reformation most likely go, what a ridiculous concept that you would pay money to earn salvation. And in our minds, we think that's out of the ballpark. Like, well, how can you even consider that? But in our hearts, we embrace it. Because we would take a passage like today's and go, yes, if I can only gain wisdom, I earn my salvation. If I can only continue to gain wisdom and not be a fool and not mess things up, if I could just pursue wisdom, get enough wisdom, show myself proved enough, I will have proven I was worthy of the salvation that was given to me freely. We so often embrace a completely different type of indulgence. And here he would go, stop. Put down all that you've gathered. Put down all the wisdom you've accrued. Put down all of the wealth that you have come with. Put down all of your goodness and just come needy. In the end, that's actually the wisest thing you could ever do. So, for the unbeliever in the room, there is no faith in Jesus. If there is no faith in Jesus, there is no promise of this newness. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, But for the cowardly and the faithless, the detestable and murderer and sexually immoral, the sorcerers and the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You think the hevel of this life is bad. Wait until there is separation from God that never ends. It has no rescue. It has no respite. There's no laughter to rescue you from the sorrow. No faith in Jesus is no hope of the crookedness being set straight. Please come to Jesus in faith. Look to his life, his death, and his resurrection. He is the Son of God, died for you in your place, and risen for you to give you life. Come to him in faith and have new life. It is done.
have that hope and that assurance. To the believer, keep coming to Jesus with empty hands, with thirst. And in the midst of coming to Jesus that way, pursue wisdom. Grow in it. Embrace the sorrow and embrace the death and embrace the rebuke and embrace today. For in those places, we learn a little bit more about our God. In those places, we find gladness for our souls. Embrace it. Jesus, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it has power to save and to sustain us. Do the work that you need to do through it today in our hearts. In your name, amen. Church, in a moment, we'll come forward and we'll take communion as we do every Sunday. Today, as you come forward and you take, I want to remind you that what you're doing is you're participating in the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. This is an act of grace towards you. As you do this, we truly believe that there is like sustaining grace that we get to be reminded of and receive through this. We are taking this going. We know that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood to forgive us, and it is done. Right? This today for us is a reminder and a strengthening and sustaining that it is finished in the midst of all the heaven. So come and take and celebrate your resurrected Savior today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask you not to come take this, but instead to remain in your seat. I'd love to talk to you about Jesus after the service. Come talk to me. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.